We are in a series, as Hilary said, out of Exodus. If you have been with us regularly, you'll know that we've been following the story through. The story, if you don't know it, really at the surface level, is the story of the Israelite people having been held in slavery and captivity for hundreds of years in Egypt. Uh, God comes and delivers them through Moses and brings them out through the Red Sea with the promise of taking them to the promised land. And we're going to read today from chapter 16 and pick up the story there. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. If not, it's going to come up on the screen. And uh, this is quite a long passage again, but so we're going to just jump down a little bit as we go through, and we're going to read from verse 1 and get straight in. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we'd died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They're a positive bunch, okay? Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Notice God still provides even though they moan. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Verse 13, jump down. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, the flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Jump to verse 19. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a uh, Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Okay, chapter 17, verse 1. 
The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So, guess what? They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a really kind of epically long journey. I once did a train journey which took 52 hours, okay? Now, in case you're wondering, it wasn't London Bridge to Lewisham, (laughs) although I know some of you have been on that train and had similar experiences to mine. This was in India, traveling from the south in Cochin to the north in Delhi, and after 52 hours on a train journey in India, you need a serious shower. In fact, you need a shower after about five minutes on that particular train, but if you've ever done like a serious journey, you will know Journeys don't always work out the way you expect. Planes get cancelled, cars break down, leaves fall on train tracks and stop entire railway systems. Motorways get jammed, children relentlessly ask you within five minutes of leaving the home, are we there yet? And the Exodus story is a remarkable journey in which things do not work out at times the way that people expect or want. And it's absolutely what you see in chapter 16 of Exodus. Here, only one chapter ago, so just prior to this, the whole people have been delivered remarkably out of Egypt, away from slavery, away from their great enemy, through the Red Sea. All the years, seemingly, of disappointment and frustration are now behind them. God's presence is with them. And they carry in their hearts the sense of promise that God has given them. I'm going to take you to a new land. It's, if you like, an, uh, an incredible sense of huge optimism. There is this afternoon a sense of optimism in the nation because England have won one game. <laughs> one game only. Oh, I think we could win the World Cup suddenly. Well, on a slightly grander scale, Israel are now optimistic. But within no time at all, almost seemingly instantly, things shift And rather than going into a land flowing with milk and honey, they are taken into a wilderness where nothing flows and nothing grows. They find themselves probably in the most inhospitable environment in the world, other than Sidcup. Okay? (laughs) Sorry if you're from Sidcup. I just have this Sidcup thing. Now, this is man versus wild territory. And Bear Grylls is nowhere to be seen. Okay, Bear's not there to lift up a rock and, and find some water that you have to filter through your sock to drink or some nasty scorpion you can crunch, sort of. He's not there to help them. All they've got is Moses and Aaron and Miriam, who's the crazy tambourine lady. No food, no water, and seemingly, suddenly, within a chapter, no God. Where's God gone? And you read it and you think, how does this happen? Because this doesn't appear to match with what God had promised them. Right, Exodus 3, God says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it's like two stages. It sounds like out and then in. It sounds so simple. And the hardest part is done, right? 
got them out. Hundreds of years they've been held in captivity. So the difficult bit's been done. They've got them out of Pharaoh's grasp through the Red Sea. You think all the hard part is done. Stage two is easy. And geographically, it's not difficult. You see, once they're out of Egypt, it's only about 200 miles to where the land God is promising them. They go straight across the Sinai Peninsula. Not a great spot to travel through, but it's only 200 miles. It's going to take them a few weeks. They should be going north and east, and yet God takes them instantly south. So it's like me saying, look, we all need to go to Scotland. I'm not saying Scotland's the promised land, but if you're Scottish, I'm sure it is. We all need to go to Scotland and then go, like, follow me, and we head towards Brighton. That's what's kind of going on here. And you kind of like, what's going on? God, maybe God's just navigationally challenged. No GPS. Now, I don't know when you grew up, but when I grew up, there was no GPS, Okay. Now, I know that sounds like I'm an old guy. We had these things called maps. If you're under 20, I'll show you what one of those are one day. They're big books with pictures, and you kind of follow them. Now, in my family growing up, if we went on holiday somewhere, normally my dad would drive and my mum would navigate. This was not a stress-free moment. Okay. Like my mum and dad were pretty good generally, and it, you know, it was a fairly harmonious place, but not when we went on journeys. Okay? It didn't, we would go off in our lovely orange Morris Marina... And my dad, we might get to a tricky junction. My dad would not always calmly ask my mum which way to go. And my mum would not always give him absolutely precise enough instructions. And if we went the wrong way, my mum would not always clearly and calmly suggest that he turns around at the next appropriate junction. Or in fact, instantly be able to recalculate an alternative route. It was, it was far more stressful than that. As an aside, when I first met Sarah, who's now my wife... One of the tests of our relationship was when we went driving together and we went wrong somewhere, how did I respond? <laughs> I want you to know, I passed. Okay. What is going on in this story? You see, they, why are they heading south rather than north? Why are they being taken into a land of like poverty when they've been promised provision? And you kind of think God just changed his mind. You know, he... He just got fed up with all the moaning. Because I would get fed up with all the moaning, all the negativity. Just, has God just gone, right, forget you. I'm going to find a whole bunch of other people to work with. Is that what's going on? Or did God just not tell them the whole truth? Did he just give them a part of the truth? Because the problem is now in chapter 16 is the position they're in doesn't appear to match with the promise they've been given. Why is God taking the long way around? That's what it feels like in your life sometimes. Well, because you realize as you read the story that God is, the destination, if you like, in the story is not the only priority for God. You see, for the Israelites, their destination is all that counts. They just want to get out, and now they want to get in. Take us to the land. Let's go now. But for God, there seems to be another agenda happening. He wants to take his time because God is not just interested in taking these people somewhere. He wants to do something in them on the journey. He's not just interested in a completely new land. He's interested in creating a completely different people. And that is exactly what God intends to do in our lives. If you become a Christian, there was a moment where you said to Jesus, I want to follow you. You receive forgiveness. You sense a new life, there's a new purpose, and it's a beginning, but that's not the end of what God wants to do in your life. It's actually, in many ways, the beginning of what he wants to do. He wants to keep working in you, to keep healing you, to change you, to transform you increasingly to be more like him. 
He's got you out of Egypt, if you like, in a night, but then it takes years to get Egypt out of you. And that's what he's doing here with the people. That's why in Ephesians 2, Paul says, now you're God's workmanship. That literally means you're his work of art, which he wants to fashion and change and form. And we don't always like that because that's an uncomfortable process in us. Now, God does that in all sorts of different ways. But one of the ways he seems to do that is that he takes us through situations which are hard. Situations that don't always make sense that don't always look like they're the right way to go, which we often would not choose, where the position that we find ourselves in or the season doesn't appear to match with the promise. And you see this throughout the Bible. In the the Old Testament, you see stories of characters where God speaks, and then he takes them through seasons where he wants to change them to get them ready to receive what he promised in the first place. So Joseph is a classic example. Joseph, as a young man, has a prophetic dream that he's going to be a great leader, He's not very wise. He tells all his brothers. If you have a bunch of older brothers, you probably shouldn't open your mouth about this. But he opens his mouth, and God takes him through a season where he's sold into slavery, ends up in an Egyptian jail. And one day he receives the promise. But there's this whole season of wilderness. David, anointed king, picked out amongst all his brothers again. And then the next thing you know, he's on the run, hiding in a cave with Saul, the king, trying to kill him. And so with Israel, they have the promise of a new land, new life in their hearts, and then God takes them straight into the wilderness. And God sometimes takes us or allows us to venture through seasons of wilderness. You see, there was a shortcut. He could have gone straight northeast, straight to the land he'd promised, but God won't take the shortcut. Because he loves his children too much to leave them as they are. And if you read on and you read into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, there's a passage there we're just going to read now, which is Moses reflecting on what happens in the wilderness and why specifically God takes the people through this season and what specifically he wants to do in them. So, and so I want to read it to you because it's fascinating and helpful to see what was God trying to do in the people back in Exodus 16. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 8. Be careful, Moses says. This is just before they enter the promised land. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Now, firstly, notice this. Moses says that God took the people into the wilderness. He allows them to thirst and to hunger in order specifically to humble them. I don't know if you know the story of the doctor, and there's a little boy and a priest and the smartest man in the world who get in a plane together. You ever heard this story? They go off on a Sunday afternoon in a plane. I don't know why all those four are together, but they're in this plane, okay? And unfortunately, the plane develops engine trouble. And despite the best efforts of the pilot, the plane starts to go down. So finally, the pilot grabs a parachute and yells to the passengers that they'd better get out and jump, and he bails out of the plane. Unfortunately, there are only uh, three parachutes in the whole plane. The doctor grabbed one of the parachutes, or three more. I'm a doctor, I save lives, so I must live to save others' lives. And he jumps out. The smartest man in the world then said, I'm the smartest man in the world, so I can't die. I deserve to live. And he grabs a parachute and jumps. And the priest looks at the little boy and says, my son, I've lived a long and full life. This is the kind of thing a pastor would say. You are young and have your whole life ahead of you. Take the last parachute and live in peace. And the little boy handed the parachute back to the priest and said, Don't worry, Father. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (laughs) Now, that's a true story. That's Deuteronomy 9, just there. You see, pride is such an enemy of faith, and it leads you into really stupid decisions. Now, we saw the other week that pride is at the root of so much rebellion and sin because it causes us to be independent from God rather than dependent. Pride causes us to tend towards attributing any success or any benefit that we might enjoy in our lives to simply down to our own great ability and clever thinking. And that's why Moses is saying again and again in Deuteronomy 8, when you enter the land and you have all the things you need, don't start thinking it's all because of you. Be careful. It causes us to live hugely destructive lives. It causes us to rebel. We say to God, who do you think you are telling me what I can do and what I cannot do? I'm going to decide for myself, thank you very much, God, what is appropriate and what is not. In fact, I'll be God rather than you. Thank him. We want to switch places with him. That's what pride does. And pride causes us to live destructive and disappointing lives. Where we think we have all the answers, but we eventually discover we jumped out of the plane with the kid's rucksack. That's what pride does. And God is saying to the Israelites, pride is so unhelpful for you. It's so destructive to your life, so cancerous to your faith. I need to help you learn humility. And so in the wilderness, he teaches them humility. He humbles them. Every day they are reminded, are they not, that they're not in control. Like literally every day they realize they don't have the means to provide for even their most basic needs. They don't even know what it's called, this stuff. Literally they're like, this stuff comes out of heaven. They look at it and they go, they say, what is it? That's translated manna. is translated, what is it? So the word they give for it is, what is it? Okay, try that one at home. If someone cooks you a meal this afternoon, you kind of go, what is it? Okay, that's what manna means. What is it? They didn't even know what it's called. They'd never seen it before. And it comes out of the sky. Every day they are reminded they are not God and he is. 
So he's teaching them humility. And alongside that, God is teaching them how to trust. They have to learn how to trust him. And the reason they have to learn how to trust him is because they're not sure if they can. They're kind of divided. They're conflicted. They're not convinced that God will be good to them. They're not even sure he's always with them. That's why at the end of the passage we read in 17 verse 7, it says, like, is God among us or not? They kind of, well, maybe he is and maybe he's not. So God teaches them again and again, you can trust me. You can trust me for today and you can trust me for tomorrow. So he gives them very specific instructions about the manna. You collect it each day. You only have enough for that one day. Tomorrow I will provide again. You can collect it again tomorrow. But you cannot keep it. If you try to, it's going to go rotten. Surprise, surprise, they try to. Why doesn't God allow them to collect more? Just collect some and collect some. Isn't that a clever kind of policy? Wouldn't that be a wise choice? Well, the reason is they, God doesn't allow them to store it up and keep it is because it's like saying to God, you may have provided today, but I'm not at all convinced that you will provide again tomorrow. I'm not sure if you are who you say you are. Okay, you've been good today, but I'm not sure if you're going to be good tomorrow or next week. So because I'm not sure, because I'm conflicted, because I'm divided, I'm going to have my very own insurance plan. I'm going to rely on myself again. We maybe start to switch places. Maybe I'll be God after all, and I'm going to make my own provision. Because it doesn't seem to make sense to me, God, I'm not going to do it, in other words. And we can live like that. We can so easily, like, not fully convinced that he's with us or that he's good. And we may, it's not necessarily that we're in outward rebellion. We're still in the camp. We can be in the room, in the people, but inwardly we're divided. We start to trust our own thinking and our own plans much more than his. Even if we know God has spoken really clearly about this issue, about how to be obedient, this, we kind of go, well, it doesn't quite make sense to me. I'm not sure, so I'm not going to do it. I'll make my own plans, my own provision. I'll have a plan for myself for day two. Thank you very much. If you don't provide that person for me to marry, I'll find them somewhere else. Or if you don't provide me enough money, I'll just keep a whole load and I'm not going to give. Or whatever it is, we make our own day two plan. We're conflicted, compromised, and it leads us into real trouble. If you know the story of Solomon at all, the son of David, that is a story of a young man who has everything set up And yet, at the end of his life, there's sadness and loss. The entire kingdom is ripped away from his family. And the slide from having everything to losing everything starts subtly. He starts to compromise a little bit here and there. God gives him very clear instructions about who he can marry, who he can't, about what to do with his wealth, what to spend it on, what not to spend it on. And yet, he starts to be conflicted. And because the instructions don't make complete sense to him, and he's not sure if God, he can completely trust him, he's not even sure if he needs God anymore because he's been so successful. He's wise and good-looking, and, and everybody kind of worships him. He starts to compromise and ignore God's instructions. And to begin with, you wouldn't know any different. It all still looks good on the surface. Yet internally, it's beginning to unravel for Solomon. And eventually, it unravels and unravels. And if you read the story through, he loses everything. And in 1 Kings 11, there's a little verse that tells you right at the heart what was the issue with Solomon, which can be our issue. Where did all the unraveling and the tragedy and what has started with such promise, how did it live, end with such loss? Well, right at the heart, it says this, because Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Divided, not convinced God will be good, not sure that God will come through tomorrow, so compromised. And God says to the Israelites, 
I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you enough manna for today, then you will have to trust me again for tomorrow. You can trust me when it all seems good and the sun is shining, uh, because I want you to learn to trust me when the position you are in doesn't seem to match with the promise I've given you. Now notice, just as an aside, what does the manna taste of? It tastes of honey. Have you noticed that? It's a little hint. It's a little, just in the, in the moment where it feels like wilderness, there are hints and reminders, the promise is not lost. There will be a day when you taste this fully, but right now, it's just for today. So God is teaching them humility and trust. And the reason those two qualities are so important is because if you put humility and you put trust together, it leads you into a life of obedience. You think, well, how do I live obediently? Well, humility and trust are key ingredients. If I'm humble, I acknowledge I'm simply a human and you're God. I'm going to let God be God. I'm not going to try and usurp your position. I'll adopt the posture of a follower and acknowledge that his ways are higher than mine. I'll trust. So I'm, I'm humble. And if I trust him, it means I believe he's good that he wants to do me good. And you put those two qualities together, it leads you into obedience. And even when he's promised to take me north and everything is heading south, I trust him. I can be obedient. In the wilderness also, God is teaching them the importance of remembering. Even in this passage in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is saying the same thing again and again and again. Verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. Remember. Verse 10, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord. That's why singing is so important, everybody. Because as we sing, we remember, which is exactly what we did this morning. For the, remember, praise the Lord for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Verse 18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors. Moses is saying to them, if you want to journey well, you have to learn how to stop and how to remember. If ever there was a day where we're not very good at stopping, surely it is this age. But he's saying, no, you've got to learn how to stop and you've got to learn how to remember. And throughout the Old Testament, God says this again and again and again. No, 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 remember, remember, remember. So he says to Joshua, take them through to Jordan, then get some stones, pile them up, make an altar, because in that place we're going to remember what happened. Why does God have to say to them again and again, remember? Because we so easily forget. We forget how good he was, how he came through, We forget we didn't contribute very much. And these people forget again and again and again. That's why they're in the wilderness for so long. It's like they have some kind of spiritual amnesia. They're more like Dory from Nemo. So in the Exodus story, God gives them some very specific things they can do in order to help them remember. He says, get some manna, stick it in a jar. Okay, this doesn't, stuff doesn't normally keep, but on this one it can. Stick it in a jar and keep it for generations so everybody can remember from the jar what God did. It's like, there you go. Here's something to help you remember. Then he says, every week, one day a week, you are to stop. It's called the Sabbath. And on that day, I'm not going to provide food. So actually, the day before, you can gather two days' worth on that day. So that on the Sabbath day, you stop. Because when you stop and when you rest, you start to reflect. And when you reflect, you remember that someone has provided for you, someone cared for you, someone brought you out, someone's been good to you, someone promises to be good to you in the future. Even through the wilderness that he promises to keep providing for you, you need to learn to remember. 
Even more than all of that, God wanted them to know and to remember. And I believe he wants us to know. And he wants us to remember and to understand this deep within our hearts that he is not only a deliverer, although he is, he gets them out. He's not just a warrior who fights for them, although he does. He's not simply the provider who gives manna, although he does. He promises to provide through the wilderness and through the moments of plenty. He's not just a shepherd who says, I'm going to take you all the way into the land, but he does do that as well. But that he is saying to them, I want you to understand, I want you to experience that I am everything. All these things are more that he himself is the manna, that he himself is the water that brings life and vitality and flourishing and satisfaction. You see, centuries later after the Exodus, Jesus is teaching on a mountainside. John 6, read through John 6 if you get a chance. And it tells us, it just hints at us, it's about the time of Passover. It's a little hint back to the Exodus story. There's something of a connection here with the Exodus story. And thousands and thousands of people are there. They're gathering to him. And guess what? They're hungry and they're thirsty and they have nowhere to go. They are a great crowd out in the wilderness with no food. It sounds familiar. So Jesus does something. He starts to reenact something, to recreate something. He miraculously multiplies bread and fish, enough to feed an entire crowd, enough for that day, enough to satisfy them with baskets and baskets left over. Jesus is beginning to demonstrate to them that their deepest needs and their greatest longings are all met in him. Not him and a little extra plan on the side, not him and a day two provision that I'll just sort out for myself. Not him and a bit of compromise over here. Because as soon as we do that, it's going, well, actually, maybe you're not everything I need. But Jesus is saying, no, no. I'm everything you need. You see, the, God allows the people, these people that he has rescued, that he has fought for, that he cares for, to experience desperate hunger and desperate thirst. He allows them to feel, if you like, the most fundamental human need there is in life, the need for food and for water. And then he meets that miraculously, remarkably, in order to teach them humility, not just to teach them to trust that he will provide, but to demonstrate to them in the most vivid way he can that he is the answer to the deepest desires, needs, longings of the human heart. Jesus is saying, I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the water from a rock. All those cravings, all those longings, all that searching, all that dissatisfaction is pointing towards me, he's saying. And, and it's only in me that the human heart, the human soul will find satisfaction and rest and life. And that's why in John 6, if you read on, Jesus says these famous words. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then in John 7, he says these words. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers, streams of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is teaching them. All of this is about me. It all points towards me. I'm the true deliverer. I'm the true warrior. I'm the true provider. I'm the true shepherd. I'm the true manna and the true water. And if you will come to me, if you will be humble, and that's where we have to choose, 
If you will trust, I will guide you and lead you into life. That's his promise to us. Let's stand together and we're going to pray.